0: The more the cash strapped, strapped, strapped you are, you are right, the right. more frugal you get, and the more so brainy you. So you don't, you don't, 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 don't. Your your brain. Been <whanse> your brain will have, <inaudible> have to move through all your neurons only if you are very starved. with So the necessity is the mother
1: of Thank you for joining Change I Am Possible, which is India's first speech-to-tech podcast. Sincerely appreciate it. to have you, Professor. So for the listeners who don't know about you, I'm going to get them like a little brief, and then we'll jump right into the conversation. Uh, so, uh, Professor Satyendra Shankar is professor of aerospace engineering at the Indian Institute of Technology Madras. Uh, uh, he has served as a postdoctoral Fellow at Georgia Tech. Prof. Chakravati's interest lies in the field of energy and combustion. He has over 75 publications in international journals and over 230 papers in international and national conferences. He has won the Young Engineer Award from the Indian National uh, Academy of Engineering, Young Faculty Recognition Award from IIT Madras, DRDO Academic Excellence Award, Dalmia HEMSI ACHREM Award in the High Energy Materials, he was a member of the editorial board of the Progress in uh, Energy and Combustion Science Journal. He has also served as a colloquium co-chair on solid fuels combustion at the 37th International Symposium on Combustion in Dublin, Ireland. Besides that, he's a mentor for Avish, uh, Avishkar Haipaloo, founder uh, at the National Center for Combustion Research and Development, co-founder at Agnikul uh, Cosmos, Co-Founder at Aerostro Willows uh, Energy Private Limited. Co-Founder at ePlane AI. Uh, really a pleasure and honor to have you, uh, Professor. So. So let's start with COVID, I, know I mean, uh, uh, from my vantage point of view, because I've invested in ARD at the month, I see a, a fundamental change because of COVID, and I think it's, it's disrupted the education industry. industry. Like the, at the education industry, which is, you know, or rote learning education industry, has been on a slow decline, and, and then you see that at the same point. Uh, we have, uh, you know, internet, which is full of education, free MOOCs, right? Massive open online courses, which is available free uh, or, 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 online. So somehow I, I feel that the internet is the new teacher and there's so much education. What stops us is our desire intent. What uh, do you think education has been fundamentally completely changed and disrupted by COVID? And if it has, what would you like the new to be implemented in in the future of
0: education? Well, that's a huge question. Okay, basically what I think is COVID has essentially accelerated a lot of things that would have probably taken about five to 10 years to happen, right? Right. And and all of that has kind of started happening in about five months right now, okay? So let's actually think about this. we are actually dealing with uh, students who are classified as millennials, right? So how do these millennials, I mean, the millennials essentially are characterized by ubiquitous availability of the internet, very good uh, bandwidth, a lot of information and so on. So how would a millennial basically look at um, teaching, right? So if... Uh, you mentioned rote learning. So uh, let's start with actually rote teaching. Fundamentally what's been happening all these years, uh, maybe centuries, is uh, um, education has been more uh, teaching-centric. So a, a professor or a lecturer or a teacher would uh, come to the classroom and uh, he or she would uh, deliver content, and uh, students are sitting in front and they would just absorb uh, they may ask questions or they may not ask questions. And if they ask questions, the teacher may answer or may not answer. And if uh, he or she answers, they may be correct or it may be incorrect. We don't know. Right. So, I mean, all of these things actually are a, a problem with the Internet, too. Like you can't get like reliable, so-called reliable information uh, on the Internet and, and, and so on. But uh, fundamentally, it's like, you know, if you're a, a, a student in some corner of the globe, Uh, you are uh, kind of stuck with a particular person to be the one that teaches you something and then your content, uh, he he or she is your content provider and you would uh, have to take that, right? So you don't really have a choice. Now what has happened is, I mean, this is even before COVID. As you said, there are a lot lot of this MOOCs and uh, uh, online material. So effectively, any student should be in a position to actually go and uh, learn what they want from, potentially the best professors in the world, but in a remote manner, right? So that is remote as in, uh, it's not it's online. Uh, so it may be uh, material that's already been delivered and the content is there, uh, and you're you kind of like, a, it's a one-way street, uh, so you just listen to what they have to say. Now, this has now become like the norm. Uh, today, online classes are the norm, thanks to COVID, right? So going forward, what we expect is there will be a lot of uh, ed tech companies that will actually um, crawl through the web for content and start looking at, um, let's say, video clips of the best professors mounting the best, uh, uh, what do you call, concepts right? in, in, in the best possible manner. Uh, and it's, it's possible that there could be a lot of AI that got, get, gets into it in order to actually even down select which clipping is better than the other in terms of viewerships and uh, ratings and all of that stuff, right? And you may now have like much more standardized course content that puts in the best of everything that is available on the internet in terms of video clips and uh, uh, text material or uh, let's say AR, VR material that is there that explains the concepts better in terms of animation. Uh, and so on. So, what it essentially will do is it will now push the best teachers in the world up there, and it will now try to suppress all the not-so-good teachers uh, around, right? So, any good university, I mean, let's look at the university. If if you're looking at college education, right, so, I mean, you can also say all these things for school education, but school education is a little bit more messy when compared to college education because there's a lot of standardization that happens in college education, so it's easier to talk about so in, in universities, like very good universities, like let's say the IITs and so on in India, uh, the focus actually has been in the last uh, few decades more towards research. So you will find university professors more interested in their research, their research groups, their PhD students, their grants, the conferences that they go to, the papers that they publish, and uh, you know, all of that. And uh, very frankly, many, many times you will find these very big short professors, Known around the world, just pay lip service to teaching. Uh, they just go to the class and then figure out what they need to talk about. They they say something and then uh, they will hurriedly get out. And then there will be a teaching assistant who will do uh, the, the chores behind uh, to to uh, teach to clarify the doubts for the students and so on, right? So all of that actually can, can make may go away. So you may simply find there are much better. There's much better content than even the most famous professor can deliver. Uh, you know, uh, physically. So students will actually now be able to prefer those. When compa- and then they will have all the uh, um, uh, AR, VR content integrated with it and all of that. So it will be a lot easier for students to learn from that than listening to this world-renowned renowned professor who is actually teaching them live uh, if he actually does a very lousy job. So then the question you have to ask is, then what happens to this one-on-one, like, uh, what do you call it, physical? Uh, interaction, teaching, contact with the with these best professors and so on. So what, what do they do? Right. So if your students can actually learn everything from online, uh, then what are the professors for? Right. <laughs> right. So yeah, So suddenly professors uh, find themselves out of job as far as the teaching is concerned, and they kind of got edged out by themselves because they were paying paying more attention to research. Right. So maybe that they deserved it. Right. So then the question is like, then what? Well, what happens to education? Did it actually stop or how, how is it going to evolve? Well, the, the good professors will continue to actually put more content and all of that, right? And the other, other, other professors will actually try to emulate them and become good and, and so on. So there will be some kind of a rewarding mechanism for people who are becoming popular teachers and so on. So the popularity of teachers is two ways. One is like good delivery of content. The second one is bringing in new content itself, right? So uh, all of that stuff will actually get, you know, uh, valued in the marketplace, so to speak then what does the university really do, right? So in the university, there are essentially two uh, objectives that will be met. One, it simply brings bright bright and young minds together, right? So people go to university simply to meet other students so that they can actually work with them on some very cutting-edge projects. For example, at IIT Madras, we do Hyperloop, right? It's a completely student-driven project. Right. So, we and then as a mentor, I keep trying to push them saying that is it possible for a, a student project to actually see the light of day in a practical application in, the, in, in which we will be able to grow a project to the point where we are able to propose a Chennai to Bangalore in 15 minutes kind of a uh, Hyperloop uh, part, right? And then and, 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 and in the tube and so on. But it, it essentially germinated as a student project. So, there are several such student projects that students uh, get into and uh, that's where if you go to a name brand university, you actually get to really work on big ideas and be part of it. I believe that the kind of network that will happen either through LinkedIn or other college networks that may also come up uh, like part of a social media will also be able to put students from across different universities to uh, and institutions to actually work on projects collectively. Right? All these things essentially end up democratizing technology. Right? So it's, it's all about what's called as democratizing, democratizing technology. So, but people will still want to actually stay in these places where they can work together with their hands and uh, exchange ideas very quickly without having to get on a Zoom call, uh, right, Right, face to face, and then check out how things happen for themselves all together and so on. So bringing bright and young minds together is one, one thing that universities would do. The other thing that it would do, professors can actually act as mentors for these students to be able to actually undertake bigger and bigger projects. So if it's possible for them to actually come up with, like for example, uh, Hyperloop, as I said, is one example. There are other examples that happen, like for example, there is a, um, a Raftar team that actually puts together a formula race car that uh, goes every year to Germany and then wins like about the top five somewhere for the race race car. Uh, this thing. And then similarly, new tech, right? So if you now look at uh, electric vehicles and all of that stuff. So, so for example, I, I have a bunch of startups. One of them is an electric plane company, right? So question is, can we make electric planes? And, and, and at what sizes can you make? So the professors will probably have to be in a position to mentor students, but the students can actually essentially learn by themselves with the, the uh, content-rich internet uh, uh, that's available to them so essentially then the, the focus now turns around to a, a learning centric education rather than a teaching centric right so the students get to actually decide what they want to learn and how they want to learn and where they want to go seek that kind of uh, information and so on if they have any specific doubts they can probably go go up to a live professor and then ask him look this is what this this guy is saying can you actually explain this better or something like that. But even then, I think they, they may be able to get more content in the web for clarifying their doubts. But fundamentally, all of that will be used for applying directly in practice on a daily basis on their big projects that they're working on, right? So this is kind of like learning by doing as well as learning from the internet uh, will be the norm. Uh, and uh, the professors will simply have be mentors. And that's how uh, the situation is expected to pan out in my opinion.
1: Right, beautiful, beautiful. Right, so, so I, I completely agree uh, with, with, with whatever you mentioned, you know. Because I think we're living in fantastic times, you know. These technologies, you know, it's it's it's, it's, it's such an nascent awesome stage, you know. I mean, your AR, VR, MR, artificial intelligence. I guess, I mean, it, it's a tool. If we take it, it, it can evolve humanity to the next evolution, the uh, n- n- next level, and even the education. You know, I mean, you know, largely which has been on a linear uh, 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 pattern uh, can come completely evolve and, and uh, you know, we, we will start solving problems rather than, you know, creating problems, you know, we'll be creating a sustainable future at this point in the world in such a big mess because of the inequality, right? And, and there is so much these youngsters can do, right? You are an inspiring professor because I, I, I've been following you and there's very few professors who, while teaching... Are also learning. So so you 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 are one of them who's mentoring so many startups. You are you 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 are at the forefront of exponential technologies, you understand the importance of exponential technologies. So can you Run my audience, your journey from a professor to a mentor to a founder. Obviously, we we'll get into your startups, which you mentioned about mentoring about Avishkar, Hyperloop, and e-plane later. But I would love to hear your journey. You know, from where you started. First of all, what
0: we have to understand that uh, we are going through uh, an era of very rapid changes. Uh, right. So when when I grew up, uh, you know, uh, I was born in the late, very late sixties. And uh, you know, went to schooling in 70s and uh, 80s, and went to college in the late 80s, and um, did my PhD in the 90s. All that stuff looks very, very old. <laughs> okay, since so it looks like it's like part of a different era, right? And when compared to what's happened in the 2000s and the the 2010s, right? And going forward, it could be much more different, and all of that. So. It's very difficult to actually chalk out a journey for this kind of rapid change, right? Right, right from the outset, my uh, I guess it's kind of like a temperament or whatever it is, right? So uh, many times I actually, if I think back, I kind of come across, in some sense, like uh, this uh, the character in this movie Forrest Gump, right, where you have a goal and then you just keep going at it, right? So, for example, you know when 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 was was uh, uh, my uh, In my undergrad, I was like a class stopper um, and I went to Georgia Tech for doing my PhD. I chose to specifically work with uh, this person, uh, my advisor, uh, that is, uh, who was at that time the oldest rocket scientist in the world right? and, and and the best one, very acclaimed internationally. I remember still a South Korean uh, tourist to Atlanta actually dropped by Georgia Tech to my advisor's office and took a picture with him. <laughs> So it was like a celebrity that uh, way for, for the aerospace uh, rocket people, right? But he was already 70 years old. And then the, the student who was actually leaving him told me uh, he had a heart attack at 52, and you uh, want to be making sure that he's alive when you finish your PhD. So I just tried to get my master's and PhD in four years straight from my bachelor's. I worked like so hard to actually make, make that happen, right? And then. Uh, I had already desired I wanted to come back to teach exactly at this particular place I'm teaching for the last 23 years. I had, had desired my, my, not only my job but also my employer. So I had to actually target my employer to make sure that he would actually pick me up when I'm ready. And they said that we need to have a postdoc experience, so I actually went and got a postdoc experience. So it's like everything like you know, just do what it takes to get there. And similarly, if you now look at after getting here in, in about 10 years, I actually went through my assistant professor. professor Know associate professor, professor, all of that stuff, and once that's done, uh, so what next, right? So maybe you're like you're, you're a full professor when you're forty years old, and then you have like another twenty-five years of you know uh, uh, career to you know go through as a professor. What next? And then that's when the National Center for Combustion R&D happened, which is a fairly huge exercise. So cumulatively, since about twenty twelve to now, we have uh, been able to attract about thirty million dollars worth of research funding. Uh, so that's been a significant uh, amount of time that I have put in, in developing a huge combustion center. And that's when the irony struck, right? So by 2016, there were two ironies about it. One was like we were developing innovations in the combustion center as mandated by the funding agency. And then we suddenly find that we are uh, actually stuck with very, very big organizations and companies to which we have to push this uh, tech if, if this has to see the light of day. And uh, these big companies uh, may, may not be able to actually absorb because they are only committed to what they're doing. They have put in their millions of dollars of uh, investment in what they're doing for the next five years, 10 years. They think that they are the ones who are driving innovation and they will tell us what they, we should be looking at and convict uh, the students. It's not a two-way street. So we can't go back and tell them innovations and so on. So that's when we started saying, let's actually look at startups to uh, you know, see if we can push these innovations. But that's when I had to then realize startup is not a joke, right? It's not, it's not, it's not simple. If you now have to actually put push technological innovations, they have to be uh, built around. Uh, there have be products that are built around those technologies, right? And we can't develop products that are of the order of like uh, aircraft engines as big as that. We can't, we can't actually suddenly uh, start up a GE, for example, right? So we have to start small. We have to start with small products, right? And those products then will have to a market business case. So where, where is the market for these? Who's going to buy these? What At what price point, right? What, so then I had to actually learn a lot of entrepreneurship and that was completely unexpected, right? So the, all this jargon about, you know, go to market and all these things that, that, that people now use in entrepreneurship. I had to actually learn all of that. I had no idea about all of right? In fact, until about three, four years back, I didn't even know what's the meaning of equity. Okay. So. All these things we have to kind of learn on the go and fast. And, and but as we did this, uh, another thing actually opened up, which is, hey, shouldn't we be actually be looking at making smaller products even in the uh, energy and transportation space, like small engines, small rockets, like small planes, and so on. And that can democratize technology much better when compared to how the 20th century has been patterned where you have had these large corporations making large things like huge thermal power plants, very long cables that are running electricity, and then long pipelines carrying uh, oil, and then there's huge refineries. The, the internet companies that we're talking about, like Facebook, and all, they're all very big companies. But they have actually sort of basically grown by democratizing technology. They just open up a platform where the content is brought by somebody else, right? and then everybody thrives on that, and, and then somebody's making money. Right, so right. you can have big companies, but the technology must be democratized. Right, you need to uh, allow for people to have choice in utilizing these technologies, and then that's where the marketplace where you should be able to generate power in your own backyard and uh, you know uh, share it with your own community. You shouldn't have to depend on some power that's coming from somewhere spewing. Uh, you know, uh, pollution and so you will have choice, right? You will now say, no, I'll probably use a solar solar panel that actually depend on thermal thermal power plant because I'll be clean, right? So if you now allow for people to choose the kind of technology that uh, is allowed, uh, then uh, you, you probably can have a more sustainable future. So going back to the 20th century, the education model that we had at that time for universities was to simply put out graduates that will be picked up by the big companies. But today, that's getting saturated. So is it possible for us to be able to actually contrive graduates from out of our universities who will actually make their own companies and then employ their own set of people around in smaller groups that will actually develop a lot of new high tech but small products that will democratize technology and bring it down to people. So this is a completely new paradigm, right? So that means that we we can't be educating People, so if, if, if you're actually educating people for getting hired by big companies, then you can actually end up doing, you can afford to do a lousy job in the university because that the, the, the big company is going to actually pick this guy and train him anyway. Right? So that's what's been happening, right? It's, it's a sham. So you, if you now look at all the employers, they would say that, you know, graduates are not uh, market ready, uh, they are not employable, we have to actually train them for another the six months or whatever it is. Whereas if you now say, no, each person should actually think about employing himself, Right. You need to have a lot of startups. You need to have a lot of uh, uh, deep tech, small product uh, companies that are to be formed. Uh, it's a completely different story. The student better learn what he has to learn properly. Otherwise, there is really no. So you have to change, shift the focus from these large corporations kind of thing to a lot of small companies and deep tech that gets pervasive everywhere. So this is what we have learned in the startups that we have had in Agnicole or Aerostrovolos or E-Plane or extra fuels that that you have not mentioned is actually also pretty amazing, where uh, we actually take uh, unsegregated municipal solid waste and then try to make crude oil out of it, which means like, we don't need to import crude oil from uh, outside and refine it. We can actually use crude oil that's generated from within the society. All of these kinds of things are expected to make a huge societal impact. So These are all things that have evolved in the last few years for me. Uh, in an unintended manner. That's how the journey has been. The other thing that also uh, ironically happened was, I was here trying to spend a lot of time trying to do combustion. And in 2016 is when I at least suddenly realized, wait a minute, the world is going towards electrification. If I actually miss that bus, I think I'm going to be a museum piece. So is it not possible for me to actually jump on that bandwagon? And most of the people were actually thinking about electric vehicles. Uh, so I said, how about actually electric aircraft? And that's when I started uh, learning about electric aircraft. And as you rightly said, one of the tricks that good professors play is if they want to learn something, they actually offer to teach it. Right? And it's kind of like a gamble that we play. But it's, it's, it's an elective course. so It's okay, we can learn. We can get the students to learn along with us. Uh, and I did actually learn about electric propulsion offered a full-fledged semester long course uh, on it for the first time uh, in the world. So again...
1: Uh, and, and that was
0: actually the, uh, what should I say, the foundation for my evening. So this is how all these things have uh, worked together for me in the last, and, and, and uh, sure enough, the last few years, I've been seeing a lot more rapid changes with me than what has happened in the last 10, 20 years.
1: Lovely, lovely. How cool is that? I mean, you know, you, and, and, and you're smartly leveraging NCCRD's research work with, with, uh, in, into the startups. And, and that's, that's the best 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 possible uh, case scenario right so so can you uh, uh, you know talk to us about how your research work at the nccrd which is the world's largest combustion research center uh, research center right so the research and uh, the the advances of there how are you leveraging
0: in, in the startups uh, you know fundamentally the nccrd actually to me stands for being able to think big so when, and, and, and I mean, I, I, as, I, as I said, I was actually this nerdy professor who was just focusing on his career progression like a typical uh, in academic world. And that's when the opportunity of having to set up the combustion center came and the government basically said, here is a lot of funding that, you, that, that we can give you, um, but put together a very credible proposal. And I was at the forefront of trying to get, get a nice proposal done and still we got a lot of flack because the proposal was still too nerdy and uh, the, the, the government agency essentially said you need to be doing grand challenges in combustion that are of practical importance. So they actually set the bar high and then we met, met that up, right? So it's it's all about actually beginning to think big. So when we thought, so one of the things about combustion is that you, you have a lot of multi-physics going on there, the like chemical reactions, then the fluid mechanics, a lot of things are actually happening, right? So typically engine companies will... Uh, whether, whether it is uh, automobile engines or whether it's aircraft engines or any any engines, they will not really look at academic research very seriously because you cannot scale them properly. So many of these things are happening at high pressure, high temperature. It's very difficult to actually reproduce things in a in an academic laboratory unless you have the kind of uh, you know uh, depth of funding uh, that the, the NCCR afforded. So the ones NCCRD could afford that kind of funding we could set up facilities that the industry was beginning to take note of because that was actually becoming very relevant to the industry. So what we could do now could be directly scaled uh, to industry level because we were doing more realistic conditions and realistic scales. So it was all about thinking big. And that's why when these innovations happened and then when we wanted to push them back to the industry, we, I felt that, you know, it's better to actually go through the startups. And that's why the Aerostromilo startup actually uh, started. In fact, Pretty much everything that we're doing obviously has a research bearing, right? So the Aerostromulose um, has uh, the, the uh, lean direct injection technology that we developed that has gone into it. Agnikul is essentially using these 3D printed rockets, right? Where we were actually testing uh, 3D printed combustors and burning uh, fuel over extended periods of time and um, newly newly uh, developed technology for 3D printing combustors with metal, right? And Agnikul essentially got... Uh, uh, got away uh, doing uh, internal engines, whereas we were actually looking at some diesel uh, engines and so on, right? So, but but the technology is essentially the same. You can you can actually do the, uh, the heat transfer calculations for the other material and uh, all of that. So, uh, so Agnico essentially um, uh, got emboldened by the fact that we were doing the 3D printed combustor research, uh, and uh, they could then say, let's actually also try 3D printed rockets. So that is that is where the research was helping. The center has actually helped in let them, letting them characterize their injectors, fuel injectors, and all of that, because they had the facilities. But um, it's not like what we did as a research was feeding injectors. But at the same time, the other thing that happened on the E-plane was um, my own research when I was moving away from combustion to electric planes, where we had started looking at uh, how to extend range of the uh, plane with, uh, with electric planes or you know, whatever it is. And then I also thought, of course, as I said, so all of the learnings that I did as a professor was feeding into e- things. Similarly, extractive fuels is actually the research that's being done by one of my colleagues in chemical engineering, was part of the NCCR uh, on uh, trying to use waste for making uh, crude oil and all of that. So that all of that research essentially directly gets into um, these uh, startups. So what I'm currently thinking is, it'll be really nice if uh, I mean let's 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 understand engineering research is all about engineering and engineering is all about products. If it's possible for us to do what's called as translational research, which means that you do research with a specific goal of trying to implement that in a product that has a commercial value, right? Uh, And try to do it with a startup in such a way that this can be easily done. And that can allow a lot of universities to become product development centers. Uh, You don't have to actually go to a very big company in order to be able to produce big products anymore with 3D printing and uh, uh, you know, AI and stuff, you can do a lot at a small level and in a much more distributed level, right, internet of things, you can pick data from everywhere and then synthesize all of that. A lot of things can be done in a, uh, so my, my way of actually looking at what is called a large scale is not doing big things anymore like what, uh, you know, like the typical uh, 20th century being an American century, you go to America, you will see everything big, right, uh, that's what I used to uh, field when I went there in the nineties, right? But no, it could be an Indian country where we actually do a lot of large number of small things to actually make up for the big scale. So there, there are like lots of uh, community power generation uh, centers, and then there are community based management centers. So we don't really have landfills anymore. We can you know generate our own power without having to depend on the grid and 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 so on, right? So you 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 figure out how to get your own water. You figure out how to get your own power. Uh, you figure out how to dispose your toilet, right? so don't depend on municipalities to you know, function properly and all of that stuff. So this is a nice way of actually getting out of all this corruption or you know, a uh, lot of that stuff. So technology is the one that's actually going to push the boundaries of how people look very comfortably in a very affordable manner by themselves. This is the way I look at it.
1: Lovely. Yes. I, I think technology in the space where it's growing exponentially and you rightfully pointed out, you know, all of these technologies are converging and it can help the humans. I mean, you know, and we need to uh, adopt a, a innovation, you know, I mean, a, and keep on solving problems. So, so uh, I mean, you, know, you spoke about your e AI. So where are you? What stage are you in? What, 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 what's the team strength and what, what's the plan ahead with e-plane AI?
0: So our path is actually uh, a three-level three path. And what we have already done is to develop a plane, uh, which is a VTOL plane. VTOL stands for Vertical Takeoff and Landing. Right, right. right. Um, so, effectively, uh, this plane would actually look like a drone if you look from the bottom with all those squad copters and stuff, but uh, it will look like a plane looking from the top. So, this is what we call as a VTOL fixed-wing hybrid. The fixed-wing actually stands for how a plane looks like with its wings that are fixed, uh, as opposed to what's called the rotary wing that used to be like... Uh, de- describing helicopters, but today we have these multi-copters. It's not like a single helicopter blade that is uh, turning around. We have these multiple rotors that are uh, forming like a drone, right? And uh, that is basically facilitated by the fact that we are doing electric. So if you had a single combustion engine, like what, you, what, we, what we would have until now, uh, you will have a single shaft that would come out of it and then that would turn a single propeller with a gearbox and stuff. Everything becomes very heavy. It's very hard to miniaturize all of this. And then uh, a helicopter, for example, has this fairly large uh, rotor blade, and then it goes, part, 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 right? So it actually chops the air, and therefore it's called a chopper. It makes a lot of noise. Now, we want to see if we can take off vertically and land vertically in cities so that we can do air taxis, And we can essentially bring down the commute time uh, to down to about 10 minutes from anywhere to anywhere across any busy city. So that our, our goal here uh, or a mission uh, in life, so to speak, is to eradicate traffic, right? So we just don't, don't want anybody to get stuck in traffic at all, right? which essentially means that they should be going from point to point, doorstep to doorstep in about 10 minutes, which means that they should be able to take off vertically and land vertically and so on. Right? So this is going to be very difficult if you use helicopters because they will make a lot of noise and that's going to cause a lot of noise pollution in an urban setting. So people have been extremely conscious about it, particularly in the West. And uh, so they try to reduce the, the size of the rotor into a large number of smaller rotors. Again, it's kind of like the, uh, so in fact, the, 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 co- the term that I coined for this democratizing technology, making large number of small things instead of one big thing, and all those things is what is called as deep infrastructure. So we, we essentially challenge the notion that we need to have large infrastructure for economic development, right? So a sustainable development can be attained by a completely different path called deep infrastructure. So, in some sense, what the noise reduction strategy, electric plane is to kind of de the propulsion. That means you put a large number of small uh, rotors and have small motors that are connecting them and, and running them. Uh, and all you have to do is to run wires from the battery, right? And that is easier to do than actually having mechanical transmission of shaft, power, and all of that stuff. All of that is enabled in these um, rotors that are allowed for vertical takeoff like a drone. And then, once you take up there, now if you want to actually continue with the drone, and that's possible. So you can actually have a cabin in which people can sit and then it can be attached to like one big drone with large number of rot- rotors and so on. There are um, implementations of that kind uh, that have also come to the market now, right? What The problem with that is a helicopter as well as these distributed rotors for vertical takeoff, they are meant for primarily staying up in the air. And you need to have them run continuously all the time at full power in order to balance the weight. Whereas what we are talking about is to have wings, when if you now go forward, and you need to go at a fairly good speed now, if you you go forward, the wings can now start generating the lift like in a conventional plane and hold the plane up in the air as it moves forward. And the power that you're spending is only to overcome the wind resistance. And typically the wind resistance is about a tenth of the weight of the aircraft itself. So it doesn't make sense for us to actually have these rotors operate all the time in order to hold the plane up and then go forward uh, in, a, in a very Herculean manner. But we, we, we try to actually have these beings do the job with a forward rotor that is pushing like a conventional aircraft. So you can take off like a drone, but actually go like a plane. And this is an implement. This is the fundamental unit of what we are trying to do. And there is a lot of AI built into this also because we need to actually look at obstacles and then be able to avoid them. And so there's like three layers of uh, control over here. One is the navigation itself. So you, you now have a flight path that will uh, uh, go through, that you specify, and it can autonomously navigate itself through those waypoints. That's the outer level of control. Then you have obstacles that might come in the way, and you have to duck those obstacles and come back to the path that you had determined before. Um, so that is where a lot of AI comes in, uh, computer vision comes in, cameras and uh, radars, or radars, all of that stuff. Uh, those, those sensors will have to be there and so on. And then the third level of control is to stabilize the aircraft from any gusts and any disturbances in the wind and all of that stuff. So that as well as the swings and the rotors together is all what the electric plane is all about. We have done a uh, implementation of this for a plane that looks like a little bit bigger than a tabletop, like about 1.4 meters. Uh, wingtip to wingtip and about 1.1 meter from nose to tail to carry between two to six kgs of payload, right? And uh, we were actually trying to uh, get this ready for uh, a lot of e commerce deliveries that could happen, and that's what we were actually envisaging. And maybe after that, we will actually get to see pizzas delivered at home by drones and so on, maybe next year. Uh, but so we were kind of a like little early last year when we tried to make this big drone, if you will, right? Uh, because that can actually go very large distances. The normal drone, for example, even what Amazon put together last year, uh, the, the new version that they came up with after three years uh, of originally talking about using drones, is um, uh, it, it, right now is, is capable of actually going about 24 kilometers with about, I think, uh, two, 2 kgs or 5 kgs. I don't remember that number right now. So, um, um, so they could do that, but what we are talking about this, somewhere up to six kgs We can take and go 40 kilometers, or with a two kg, we can actually go to even 100 kilometers. Which also essentially means that if I'm going only I'm only doing 10 kilometer trips, right? I don't have to actually swap or recharge my battery every 10 kilometers, or 15 kilometers, or 20 kilometers. I'll be able to do about four or five trips before I can actually recharge my battery. So that means I save on my battery cost because the battery will last only for so many number of uh, recharge cycles. Right. So, and, and then that cost curve is something that we have to be very conscious about in electric uh, vehicles. So we, we did this. The next thing that we are actually just about starting to do is the next level subscale version, which is a vehicle we call E50. Uh, the previous one we have just called E6, uh, going by the payload capacity. So the E50 is supposed to be able to take about 50 kg payload and uh, go about 200 kilometers now at a speed of 1 meters per hour. And uh, so we now are looking at the next level and this would be the size of a car. We expect like about three meter wingspan uh, and uh, a similar such most to tail uh, uh, distance and so on. So that, that's again like a plane and here now we will actually be looking at engines that are more compact and also reducing noise uh, when compared to what uh, we, we did with the uh, E6 with the naked propellers like the, the, the drones. Uh, here, it's not going to be drones. It's going to be uh, what's called as ducted pants that we want to uh, be developing. So this process of uh, developing this has commenced, and um, we expect to actually finish this by next April. That's our current plan. Uh, and uh, then push it out uh, to flight tests and then certification and so on, and uh, look for markets where it can be deployed, uh, not necessarily, not just in India, but also abroad and so on. Uh, while there, we want actually slowly ramp up our design for the uh, two-seater uh, aircraft, which would again be the same configuration, so it's essentially a scaled-up version. So you have the wings and these ducted fans, uh, maybe larger number of ducted fans to meet the thrust requirement for liftoff and forward flight. Sometime towards the later half of next year is when we will start uh, making the plane, fabricating that plane, the two-seater version. So we have to pay a lot of attention to. The interiors now, we have a cabin with uh, two seats, and uh, initially we want to actually go for a piloted version, a human piloted version. So the pilot controls, uh, what are the human factors that go with it, what are the certification requirements for that, as well as for the aircraft performance. Um, what, are, what are the redundancies that are required for a manned aircraft, uh, and so on. So all of these things are refactored in so that it'll take a little longer, and then we start fabricating it. So sometime in 2022, early 2022, hopefully if everything goes well, uh, is when we will actually start doing the flight test of that for certification. And then again, um, since we are actually working on all these smaller planes they are autonomously piloted, uh, we can actually have an autonomous piloted version for cargo of about 200 kgs that's equivalent to about two, two, two passengers. Uh, and then we also have the passenger version where we will have a human piloted uh, test pilot uh, you know, pilot the plane and uh, go through certification process. Uh, and then we will have to switch back to autonomous when certification agencies are confident enough, people are confident enough to get into a, a pilotless plane, so to speak. Right? So mm-hmm. there again, we said that we will actually have a two-seater or even a pilotless plane so that uh, there is a psychological um, comfort that people have that they will have one more companion uh, in, the, in the plane. Uh, otherwise, it could have been a single-seater plane because if you look at most Uber rides, they're all like single passenger rides, uh, Uber or Rola rides. Um, so, likewise, we could actually have had uh, a single seater itself. Uh, in fact, one of the uh, Chinese uh, versions they started with a single seater, and now they are going to two seater. Right, um, right. so We can actually have a human pilot. Uh, so, but we we decided right from the beginning that uh, people may not be comfortable traveling alone, and therefore we actually look for two seats. That's how it is.
1: Lovely, lovely, super awesome! How cool is that? And I think it's the best way to start with delivery drones, and then you get into passenger aircrafts. So, and you know, like you mentioned, there's a Chinese company, I think Xang, who's who's looking at VTOLS. Uber Uber has got a VTOL. Kitty Hawk has a VTOL. I never thought that somebody in India would be looking at a VTOL, and I'm so super super excited for vertical takeoff and landing machine. And I think you know, rather than having autonomous vehicles, I mean, you know, we're working on the autonomous vehicle, which are. Uh, it is going to be pretty much difficult for the indian roads to handle i think a uh, uh, autonomous uh, aircraft especially an electric plane i think would be the future of transport it it, it could o- open up uh, the the, the tra- transportation and and i, I see that uh, as a beautiful future now talking about transport you know you are also mentor for avishkar uh, hyperloop right so could could you talk about avishkar hyperloop and do you see Avish, i mean hyperloop becoming a reality you know at this point in time in uh, in maharashtra i think virgin hyperloop is talking to uh, the, the maharashtra government for for the bombay pune corridor and, and they they're saying that they'll have a test track by 2025 and maybe like another 5 years they'll have a complete uh, 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 bombay to pune uh, corridor re- ready when do you see Hyperloop becoming a reality and what part or what role do you see Avishkar Hyperloop playing over there?
0: Just to start by answering that by quoting Bill Gates, who is supposed to have said long back that uh, people um, overpredict what's going to happen in two years, but grossly underpredict what's going to happen in 10 years. So it's very difficult to actually see what will happen in 10 years, but that's exactly where the crux is. For kind of things that we are doing we're always looking at a 10-year period to uh, bring a, bring about a change. In fact, my approach is a lot of things that we're doing should actually change the way the next generation behaves with, res- with respect to technology, right? So it's going to be a generational change that we have to bring in. So in this case of Hyperloop, we expect like about a 10-year period is when things can actually become a reality simply because you need to be able to run these vacuum ducts right, over very long distances and so on, so that's, that is the thing. So in that sense, it's kind of like infrastructure intensive is what it would look like. But um, just like how, you know, just like I have to dial back to the, uh, the E-plane story, right? Uh, we have certain theses that are counterintuitive and that's also true with hyperloop, that's a reason why I'm kind of dialing back. So there are certain theses that are kind of very counterintuitive. For example, we think that passenger aircraft which are air taxis, may be allowed uh, even earlier than delivery drones, okay? And that's because helicopters today exist and people would actually, and certification agencies as well as people, would want the continuity in change, right? Whereas a lot of these small drones, they're okay for like uh, bedding photographs and all of that, but, you know, for them to be crisscrossing the skies, because small ones are actually something a lot of people can put together very easily, right? So you will suddenly find the skies flooded with this and you will have crashes and then they come crashing on somebody's head and so people will be a lot more cautious. So you will find that man, I mean people carrying uh, vehicles uh, can be far fewer because they can actually do the trip in ten minutes. What is going to take you an hour or hour and a half in Bangalore, right? So that means like uh, on the whole, about 100, 100 e-planes can actually do the job of about thousand taxis. Right. So you see the point. That means like the crowd, the the the, the uh, cities will the skies won't be crowded. And uh, it would be a lot easier for them to actually implement that when compared to rows. That is one counterintuitive stuff, right? The 2nd counterintuitive stuff is it's it's probably a lot easier to actually bring in autonomous planes when compared to uh, autonomous cars because autonomous cars face a lot more hurdle, right? When compared to autonomous planes in the sky, you can add several layers of uh, you know uh, uh, corridors, air corridors and all of that to differentiate them and so on, right? So, of course, you know, we, we were there's a lot more safety consciousness in, in there. And then if you're able to meet those safety standards, bingo, right? you, you, you can actually go forward uh, with that. So these are all very, very... And the other to that you pointed out, right? So India is actually a nice place for us to actually bring in these technologies because this is where the pain point is actually the most. Right? So you might find that Indians actually start flying a lot more compared to other people. Right? So this, this, this could be quite competitive If you're able to bring the price point in appropriately. So similarly, in the case of Hyperloop, Right. The counterintuitive thing is, when compared to a um, high-speed rail track which has to be perfectly aligned, right, for, for the high-speed train to work, it's sufficient if this tube that we're talking the vacuum tube that we are talking about need not be exactly circular and so there can be deformities, right? So we can typically be okay with like an Indian kind of hyperloop, right, <laughs> uh, and that will be okay because the, the vehicle is not going to touch any of these things. It's actually levitating. Right. right. So if it is levitating and then it's kind of like doing a little bit this way, that way, it's okay. The course is going at a very high speed, right? So you want to make sure that it doesn't really crash, but there is a levitation that's making sure that it's happening. It's not going to go hit the roof, it's not going to go hit the sides, there are guides that do this. So it's okay if this tube is not like very, very perfect, okay? So that way it will not be as much of an infrastructure um, intensive thing as, uh, let's say, a high-speed rail track. Right? That said, you still have to actually put them. Like, if you have to go from Chennai to Bangalore or Bangalore to Bombay or something, you have to have these tracks. You have to worry about how this turning happens at these very high speeds and all of those things. So those things have to be perfected. So when uh, Elon Musk, for example, uh, uh, in SpaceX, right, when they were running this competition for about three, four years, um, they stopped it. They stopped it last year, even before the pandemic. And they basically said that they are actually trying to increase the track length from one mile to something like 10 miles. So they are actually trying to find some 10-mile-long uh, 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 track where they would put this uh, uh, thing, and so on. I don't know if, the, if they would to resume the competition based on that, and so on. I understand they would. So the competition actually got disrupted. So while there, uh, there was like uh, some Arizona University um, uh, that was actually trying to run a competition, but they were not having any all of that. So they said they would just do a, a rail in which you could have uh, a pod run on wheels, uh, which I said, they're going to do that, We can do it ourselves. So we were actually, just before the pandemic, by about February 28th or so, we were actually putting out a global competition at IIT Madras. Okay. Uh, like what the Arizona State University was doing, or University of Arizona, I do right. So they, they, they were doing it. right? And our goal is to see if we can actually do at least part of uh, half of what SpaceX has done. Which means that we have a duct, we have, we have a vacuum tube, and we bring people with different parts. Uh, uh, and and uh, you know allow for them to race and all of that stuff. It's, it's it's one of the things. The second thing is that gives us like a nice test bed for us to test a lot, a lot of technologies in about a half a kilometer track. But the problem with that is and that that's something that we can actually manage in our in our uh, you know, we have a satellite campus where there is some space for about half a kilometer at a stretch where we could manage this. But uh, that's not going to actually let us reach top speeds because we to into the rate before you reach there, reach there. So if we are able to show that, then we can actually get a lot of interest. Already there is a lot of interest from a lot of big companies, right? Like, uh, like uh, 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 steel companies, um, uh, automotive companies, uh, construction companies. A lot of them actually are coming behind us saying, is it possible for us to you know, uh, sponsor something or whatever it is, right? So we could actually gather all of them, maybe form an industry academia consortium, uh, go to the government, get some funding so that we can actually do a 10-kilometer track. And while there, we can also try to partner with any of those other world players who are into this Maharashtra project, for example, right, uh, and so on. So, why would we do that? Because it's so collaboration is always easy, so that we can actually cut down the time it takes for development. But one of the key things that we have to understand that we have leveraged in Agni for example, is Indian tech. So when you when Indians develop this tech, it actually can be done at a very dirt cheap level, right? Uh, so we want to actually bring down the cost of development of Hyperloop so that it becomes very affordable and we have benchmarked the cost that we have projected against what are the global benchmarks on Hyperloop and we are uh, certainly a shade cheaper when compared to what uh, we, we are confident that we can actually do this significantly cheaper when compared to this. So either by collaboration instead of competition that would be preferred or at least we, are, we should be in a position to actually put out our own technology. When uh, compared to others, uh, in an extremely competitively priced manner uh, for a 10-kilometer ride, as a demonstration, like what they are actually doing in Maharashtra, uh, and uh, then progressively now get into a project where you would actually connect Chennai and Bangalore in 15 minutes, kind of thing, right? right. So this is uh, this is the roadmap that we have. The question we're not sure in this pandemic situation is how long this will this roadmap will take. I think we can probably get there in about five years to get to the Scale uh, implementation between two cities. Uh, that, that all the, what, what do you mean, like the, the, the half a kilometer and the 10 kilometer, all of that can be done within five years, and we can have a blueprint ready for launching the full project for like, at least one pair of cities uh, in about five years. That's, okay. that's very um, uh, tangible to think about. Uh, right. But the actual project, which will carry people will probably start in five years and then the construction should take another whatever time it takes, maybe another five years or so for for people to start writing. That's why I'm saying it should take take 10 years. That's the kind of outlook we have.
1: Lovely, lovely so so you've been one of the pioneers when, when it comes to combustion so how is agni cool and isRO or isRO leveraging that you know because at this point in time you, you see that there's a global space race right you know I mean uh, soon I, I think that the space economy is going to be somewhere around a trillion dollar business right and, and you know it, it's it's not just for exploration you know there people are actually looking at like you know getting some money because there's mining resources uh, uh, available over there plus besides that there's this Amazon SpaceX OneWeb. Even Apple is jumping out of the bandwagon because they are flooding the sky with satellites, you know so there's this huge huge business opportunity so yeah, talk to us a little bit about AgniCool and what 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 are you doing here
0: so AgniCool is again exemplifying uh, deep infrastructure in many ways right so if you look at the space race of the twentieth century, it was between nations right and and Primarily, uh, it was all about like setting an altitude record. like Go, go to the moon, one off, maybe about, like, let's say, three, four sorties, uh, and then say, okay, we have been there, done that uh, kind of thing. And the Russians took it quite seriously and then set up a space station uh, ahead of uh, everybody else, and they had like, a lot of experience doing that. But they actually were sticking to the low-Earth orbit and, and uh, having human habitat in uh, space and, and, and so on. But fundamentally, what you will see is that it's Americans doing this, Russians doing this, That's exactly like what I said about the 20th century having all these big corporations to which universities put put, put out their graduates for the job market. That's changing now. We are now basically saying that everybody should actually create their own job. That's what I'm I'm, I'm trying to push. So that's exactly where it's no longer like a nation-specific space race. The space race is all about commercialization as far as we can see. But there is also the deep space mission component which is about exploration. And even there, you actually find quite a few... Private companies, particularly even startups, are getting interested. And then there are these uh, fairly uh, ultra high, high net worth individuals who are interested in putting in money uh, in them, like Jeff Bezos, his own company, or, uh, uh, or, or all of the other people who are having big, uh, big, deep pockets, essentially can put in money for even deep, deep space. Now, the interesting thing is uh, ISRO, for example, uh, has been working with IIT Madras for their research for a very long time. And similarly, they have been working with private companies for a very long time. ISRO is a f- fantastic example of how to leverage everything that's available to tap and uh, use it. So they are actually a fairly nimble and uh, frugal organization. In fact, I believe, I think I've said this in a, a TED Talk before as well, that uh, ISRO has been practicing frugal engineering long before Tata came up with Nano and you know, made frugal engineering uh, a buzzword. Uh, and what we are now talking about is uh, people like Agnipul trying to actually make space access even more affordable, right? and that's primarily made by things like 3D printing. If you're now able to actually do 3D printed rockets, and here again, starting small is actually very useful. Right? So if you look at when Agnipul started about two, three years back, uh, the build volume for uh, you know doing a 3D printed uh, metal was of the order of about, uh, I think, uh, A quarter meter cube was something that was very common, was just about coming there, but half a meter cube was not something that was unheard of. So they configured their rockets to actually fit that kind of a build volume. But today, we are now looking at build volumes that are like three-fourths meter cube being commonplace and one meter cube becoming something that's not unheard of. So they can easily scale this particular rocket that they have, uh, the the rocket engine, that they will now sort of copy-paste and cluster Right, in a modular manner and configured the entire rocket for the particular payload. So one of the things that we have been able to actually achieve with these liquid rockets is a very flat cost curve that is very hard for anybody in the competition to beat. What that really means is we are, uh, we are configuring the rocket for a 100 kg payload to go to lower orbits. right? Now, if you look at how rockets have built, like let's say, for example, we followed ISRO, right, with their own history, they started with an slv which was capable of carrying a, one, a 40 kg payload to the world orbit then they did the aslv by actually putting the the uh, the, uh, the first stage they just copy pasted uh, And a copy paste of course is like more modern jargon and compared to that, those times and they it's not exactly copy paste right so. uh, they, they, they put to strap ons to actually increase the lift off thrust so that they could put a 160 kg payload that was the aslv And these actually became the strap-ons for the PSLV. Now you have the six strap-ons of a PSLV, are essentially the first stage of the PSLV or the SLV. So then the rocket essentially became big. So it's like what was like a a Raptor now became a T-Rex, right? So that's that's the way they actually grew. Um, So it's sort of easy for us to think about growing a rocket in size, adding more and more of the base elements around. What we are talking about is subtracting the rocket. From the 100 kg payload, if you now, is it not possible for us to actually remove uh, these engines and then get smaller clusters to work with, and also tailor the amount of propellant that you are going to take, so that we will be able to actually take a 30 kg payload without them having to wait for another three more such satellites to come and you know be put in the uh, payload bay, right? I should be able to actually offer the same price point on a per kg basis for the dollars that I am charging for the 30 kg satellite guy. As much as the 100 kg satellite, or I'll be going at a loss. Right, so try tightening the business case and trying to configure the rocket and also launching it from a mobile launch uh, pedestal, which can be now configured. All I need is a barren ground. For example, today in space has come up, and then uh, ISRO is essentially offering their launch port for us to launch, but not necessarily a launch pad because. Um, they would essentially say our launch pods are actually configured for our launch vehicles, right? So we are launching PSLV and GSLV Mark II and GSLV Mark 3 now, and we are going bigger. And of course, they have a small satellite launch vehicle, which is a solid rocket, a completely all solids. Uh, the thing, and then they are actually trying to come up with a launch port uh, in, in somewhere deep uh, south in Tamil Nadu, right? But they will not have liquid propellant storage uh, facilities and all of that stuff out there, and the launch pad will be configured for their their launch vehicle. So they would basically say, I can give you a piece of land for you and maybe a power connection or something, right? But uh, you will have to actually figure out your own launch pad. It's not like we are actually going to go and build a launch pad out there. We will simply move trucks, right? So right. You, all you all you have to do is to give me barren land I, and I will actually move in there like a marriage hall, right? With all, all my stuff, right? Do the uh, launch. And then if you want me to disappear, I can actually pack my bags and put them in the container trucks and move out. Right. That level of nimbleness is something that is, is, is now coming to you. That is where we are talking about this democratizing technology. and all, right? That means you tell me that you have a satellite that I have to launch, which is either 30 kg or 40 kg, 50, 60, whatever number, I will be able to actually charge you the same rate on a per dollar base, per kg basis. Right? And, and I will be able to configure my rocket and get that rocket done in about a couple of weeks, launch it for you. No waiting time. So this is the pain uh, point that we are actually trying to solve. This is this is now the new space race. How to simplify access to space is actually the new race that we are talking about. Right. Okay. This has got nothing to do with nations, nothing to do with uh, nationalities and stuff. And this will actually penetrate to deep space missions too. So we have we are already working on technologies to go to the moon, okay, and and do it very very cheaply. Right. So right. that's where you know the the. Uh, I'm actually pretty happy that we are sitting in India because India has a very good brand name for space, thanks to So, And that exists in this country for us to be able to actually come up with tech that is superior and the best in the world. And we can actually stand a good chance in terms of making a good business case. So It's not about national pride or achieving some scientific goals and all of that. So we will actually make business case in our hands.
1: Right, right, right. How, how cool is that? And you know, I'm so enjoying this conversation because I see the passion in you. You are mentoring these really bold and Audacious startups. You know, a problem with India is you know with the investors. I see that they are investing in startups with the low-hanging fruits. While as you, when I'm having a conversation with you, I'm getting a little lost because you have your hands full. You have your hands in Avishkar Hyperloop. You have a hand Agni Cool. You have a hand full with your know, e-plane AI and Aristo, which we have not even spoken about. And you are. Putting driving for anyone, everyone to be an entrepreneur and think big and not restrict themselves. Because I think the future is super awesome. All of these technologies, if you leverage, you can build beautifully. Like you said, Agni Kool is using 3D printing to build. 3D printers to build rockets and and what that's going to do, it's going to democratize technology. I think we are at the cusp of entering the future of abundance, you know, all our wars have been fought because of scarcity and there is this wrong notion which is being uh, spread to the world that we uh, we have the lack of resources which is completely untrue because if you see our world is full of resources and somehow it's obviously it's not uh, it's there's large inequality over there because one person of the global population owns the entire 90% of the world well, but now, if you're an entrepreneur, you can change that. You know, you have the option to set any corner of the world and use the resources which the internet has and connect with people like you and build innovation. So so I'm super excited about the future. And and, and I'm, uh, it, it's a really a pleasure and honor to speak to you. So any, uh, your last question, uh, you know, views to our listeners and what is your moonshot, what comes next because but you know somehow all have been your moonshot, you know, whatever you've been doing is a moonshot. But what are you most excited for and what are you looking for in the future?
0: Well see the, the, the word moonshot is something um is actually a bad word. <laughs> okay. So I mean, let's let, let's let's understand that right so so you you can actually use the moonshot in a in a nice manner if resources are actually at your disposal, right? So when somebody is actually saying that I'm actually after a the moonshot, they are making fun of me, basically saying that I'm actually after something that may not work, that may not happen, right? uh, That's kind of like what's going what's by a moonshot. Whereas what we are actually trying to do is, unless there is a business case for doing what we are doing, and we are seeing a line of sight to be able to finish what we are doing after taking it up, Right. We need to have the numbers work, worked out uh, in the equations and the simulations and all of that stuff should actually say that it is possible, err on the safer side, exactly like what ISRO has been doing, about it, right? So ISRO has been working with very cash-strapped budgets, right? So in fact, the more cash-strapped you are, right, the more frugal you get and the more brainy you get. So you don't, you don't I mean, your, your, brains, you, your brains will have to ooze all your neurons, only if you are actually starved with of money, right? So that's where necessity is the mother of invention. How do you actually look at uh, you know shortcuts that will actually work out in the long, in the long run? And and that is, that itself is actually kind of or whatever I just said is actually contradictory. Right? So, but but that's exactly where you need to apply brains, right? So you need to become very smart, very brainy when you actually are not looking at looking for a lot of capital. So we are typically capital starved, not because there is lack of capital, but lack of confidence in ourselves to be able to actually put the capital to use, right? So that's actually our curse that, 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 that we have been working with. We just don't have confidence that we can do things. In this climate, we have to show that we are doing these things, and which essentially means that it's very important that we actually show a business case for what we are doing and the line of sight to be able to achieve that in a technical, technically feasible manner. Right. And, and, and the, the business case is essentially going to assure the economic case. So all of these things will have to tie together. And that's why I would actually hate to use moonshots. But that said, yes, there are lots of other things that we can actually think about. Like, for example, today, when compared to what it used to be about 30, 40 years back in the Ronald Reagan's times that NASA was trying to do, where they were talking about going from New York to Tokyo in four hours we can actually think about going from Chennai to San Francisco in four hours with, uh, with uh, hypersonic flight. We, uh, at IIT uh, Madras, we have been working on, and at NCCRD, we have been working on technology that actually pertains to this. And in India, for example, uh, we have had ISRO demonstrate this uh, supersonic flight uh, with, with some um, world records that they have actually beaten. Uh, and uh, similarly, DRDO has their own, uh, you know, such work that they have done with uh, uh, liquid, liquid fuels Right, where they have shown prolonged uh, duration, I think they'll probably do a flight test very soon as well, and so on. So, the, the technological expertise actually is available in the country, including IIT Madras, where we have done these kinds of things. And there is a, a far more development that has happened in the last uh, 30 40 years in this, in this realm. So, one of the next things that we should probably be looking at is how is it possible for us to go from Chennai to Uh, San Francisco in four hours. That could be like the next big thing that they want to go So fundamentally, you know, in, in COVID, coming back to COVID, right, what has it really taught us? It essentially has demolished distances, right? People can actually talk to each other across any distances. They don't need to travel. So it's a huge challenge to transportation itself. Right. So people can actually ask the question, why is this guy actually breaking his head for all this e-plane or this, uh, you know, uh, going from one place to the other in 10 minutes or going from one city to the other in 15 minutes, creating an intercity metro with Hyperloop loop and, and so on. The point essentially is, if I have to now work on transportation technology, it better be really, really out of the world and be really be cutting edge. That compels people to say yes. I think it's sufficient. It, it, it's okay to travel now because it's just going to happen. Ten minutes across the city, fifteen minutes between cities, and four hours. Up, up. Right. We kind of put the boundaries on transportation so that we can we can overcome the uh, reluctance for people to travel because they can. They are always a zone call away. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this challenge that we are actually looking at and we have to gear up for the
1: challenge. Lovely. Super, super, super. Thank you. Wishing you the very best with all that you do. It's a pleasure and honor order- Talk to you. I, 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 I've, I've I've done close to around fifty or sixty interviews on Change Jam, possible podcast. But talking to you, I feel that there's so much that I've missed out. You know, I I wish I could sit with you and, and spend a day, learn from you, understand your energy because you are so passionate. It cuts cuts across, and and, I, I, and you, like I said, I'm, I'm going to put that, take that word again. That you are a bold, uh, uh, visionary, audacious. Uh, uh, entrepreneur, innovator, professor, and I need. I think we need more people like you in a country to push drive the innovation because I think that's the only way we will be able to reverse the impact of COVID-19. You know, uh, we are living in an exciting time. All of these technologies are tools which we can leverage and. Enter into the, the beautiful like the the, the fourth industry revolution or singularity which is waiting for us. So thank you and it's a pleasure and honor to speak cool. to you. Uh, really, really appreciate you. you giving the time and to my listeners. If you like uh, uh, and hear yeah, what you see,
0: please, please press the subscribe button. Until next time, see you guys. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Really. Cool. Thank it. you very much. Thank you.